Thank you so much. Wow. I'm uh, really sobered <laughs> by those words and deeply touched, and I thank God for it. What a wonderful time we already had around the altar. Now think for a moment about the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And then on the other side of it, think of the lostness, the utter lostness of people all around us from here to Timbuktu. And between those two, the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the lostness of this world. And let me ask you this question. What stands between the Lordship of Jesus Christ and the lostness of the world? I think you know the answer. But just turn to the person next to you and just say to them, it's you and it's me. Tell them that. Will you do that? That's what stands between the Lordship of Jesus and the lostness of the world. I thank God this morning for the privilege of sharing with you. Uh, I want to acknowledge some people who are, I think, giants, uh, Brother Mattox and others who are here, but uh, someone special to my heart is my own daughter-in-law, Marie Arzuni. Uh, Marie, just stand for a second. Yes. We have many secret titles for Marie in the family. And uh, one of them is she is the walking encyclopedia of the Arzuni family. So anyway, I'll stop there. I won't say any much, much more than that because I know she's going to take me to task later on. Okay. Let me ask you this question this morning, not to take anything away from what we've been singing and what we've been saying. Well, let me put it this way. Let me just use a verse. How about Luke 6, uh, 16, excuse me, and uh, verse uh, uh, 6 and 46. I'm, I'm getting my things mixed up here, but here's the question. Not asked by me, but by Jesus. He says, but what, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I ask? Thank you for that. My wife Linda and I have been serving in West Africa, but right now in the country of Mali, the land of uh, famous Timbuktu, uh, we are working with an unreached people group called the Malenke. Uh, what we can tell you about them very quickly is that uh, they are not unreached for just no reason. Uh, usually unreached people groups are very resistant groups. And uh, laborers are very scarce, that's for sure. And then they are not only uh, unreached, but they oftentimes, you'll find out, are among the poorest of the poor. And that's the fact of the people that we work with in the country of Mali. And they are also Muslims. 90% of them are Muslims. Some are radical, some are moderate, but they all are highly resistant to anything, absolutely anything that is a Christian.
we have a ministry platform that allow us that allows us to interact with people like that because of several things we have discerned among the folks that God sent us to minister. Uh, I can tell you that uh, they live in complete ignorance of the gospel, that they are lost, and their lostness is multifaceted. We think oftentimes of lostness simply in terms of them not knowing Jesus Christ or they haven't heard about him. That is a fact that is true, but their lostness also includes uh, this poverty that I've talked about. They are lost also inside of an oppressive system called Islam. They are lost in poverty. Uh, they are lost in sin and spiritual darkness. That's a fact. And they are perishing really in every sense of the word, every day without Jesus Christ. We know him as Lord and we also understand them in their lostness. And what stands between that lordship and their lostness is you and me. I struggled as a former Muslim myself when I came to the end of my rope, so to speak, having tried to embrace Islam to change my life uh, at a very difficult juncture in my uh, journey, finding myself coming out of a jail and then wanting to have another kind of existence, a different life, wanting to be a good Muslim. I embraced Islam and for several years gave myself to it only to come out empty and I really didn't know ultimately what I was going to do. I had heard of other groups. I had heard about, yes, Christians. I heard that. And that was not a very happy uh, word in any sense at all. Uh, in fact, let me tell you, when I was just six years old, my first day at school, my dad had put us in a school that was a private French school in colonial uh, uh, French West Africa in a country called Senegal. And one day I just heard some melodious sounds coming out of a building and I was curious. There were bells ringing. It was a Catholic church. I didn't know what that was. And I uh, made my way to that building to see what was going on and found people coming to a, uh, the, right at the entrance, coming to a basin of water and dipping their fingers onto that basin of water and doing something like this, you know. They were uh, genuflexing and signing the cross. I looked at that, there was nothing in my experience, no reference that would enable me to understand what it was, but I was mesmerized, and that same day, as I was washing my hands to uh, come to the meal, my father walked into the bathroom and found me playing with the water, and I was doing just this one thing. And my Muslim father just absolutely lost it. He panicked, he screamed, what in the world are you doing? Where have you learned this? Where have you been today? Who told you about this? And I mean, I was terrified, panicked. Didn't know how to answer him. And he began to tell me that this is the stuff that the blasphemers, the infidels, the idolaters, the immoral people, the scum of the earth, basically, this is what they do. And then he says, if I ever catch you do what those Christians do, I will kill you. Now, that was my introduction to the word 
Christian. So at the end of my rope, where was I to turn? To that which was Christian? That, that was awful. That was not an option at all. And you can understand today, as we minister to Muslims, that we are confronted with a lot of obstacles, and one of the biggest hurdles is just this one word, Christian. Don't ever invite your Muslim friend to become a Christian. Because they don't understand that word in the way you and I understand it today. Well, let's go on with what we started with. Jesus asked the question, with regard to his lordship and with regard to the lostness of the world, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things that I say? Now let me supplement that with a passage from Exodus that you know very well. And I'm going to skip several verses just for the sake of time. But it's taken out of Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 to 10. Uh, and I'll just uh, remind you that it is the experience that Moses had uh, at the burning bush when God spoke to him. And he basically put two things before him. One, his lordship, and the other one, the lostness of the people that he was sending Moses to deliver and lead out of Egypt. And we read in that passage that when God spoke to him, uh, he reminded him that he was the God, verse 10, for verse 6, excuse me, uh, that he is the God of uh, Moses' father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. That's where it began. And he says, at this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land and into a good and spacious land, etc. And then verse 10, so now go, go. I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. If you will permit me just one more verse. If you skip to the next chapter, chapter 4 and verse 24, at the end of that chapter, we are told this one little amazing thing. At a lodging place on the way, on the way to Egypt, Moses is going because God said, go. The Lord has spoken and he is on his way. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. Now, this is a little bit amazing, isn't it? We learned something about the lordship of our God in these terms. The moment he says to Moses, I am. I am the God of your fathers. I am. And then he supplements that with the command to go. That's lordship. I am. This is who I am. And I'm telling you, go. I give you a mandate. But it's interesting also to notice in that passage how lostness is described. It's described in terms of being seen. He says, I have indeed seen the misery. 
of the people. It's also described in terms of being heard. God says to Moses, I have heard them crying out. It's interesting how lostness is described by our God. He also describes it in terms of being concerned. He says, I am concerned about their suffering. That's part of the lostness we're talking about here. And it is described also in terms of rescuing because God says to Moses, so I have come down to rescue them. Now, in this way of looking at it, we who are followers of Jesus, we stand between that lordship and the lostness of the world. And God says to them, to us, excuse me, God says to us, I have come down to rescue them, but you, you, you go. Yet somehow, between lordship and lostness, between the place of bowing down in worship, just like we were this, this morning, singing, yes, I will say yes to you, Jesus, in my obedience. In between that place of bowing down in worship, in response to his lordship, between that and the fulfillment of the mission to rescue the lost, between saying, yes, Lord, I will go, and the fulfillment of the mandate that God has given us, something like this could come up. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. What in the world happened? What is this about? How could the Lord who just commissioned Moses, how could it be that now he is seeking to kill him? What has become of the Lord's concern that he talked about when talking about the lostness of those uh, people in the mud pits of Egypt out there? What happened to that concern? Well, I'm not going to belabor this point. Just a very quick look at the context, and you can do that on your own. In chapter 4, you discover that the real issue had something to do, the incident had something to do with the need to circumcise Moses' son. You learn also from the immediate context that that incident indicates to us that uh, there were some marital problems in Moses' life. There was signs of marital conflict. And you can't escape the feeling that Moses' wife, Zipporah, was not very supportive of this practice called circumcision. And in fact, she didn't have any nice, sweet, kind, comforting words for Moses after God spared his life. She was very harsh with him. In fact, though the Bible doesn't say that, I, I personally suspect, and I have this propensity to read things between the lines, uh, I, I suspect that 
if you see that Zipporah didn't stay with Moses on the mission field and that she was sent back, and later on in Exodus chapter 18, you see Moses' father-in-law Jethro bringing her back to Moses, I think it had to do something to do with this tension. Something wasn't quite right. The incident also is indicative that somewhere, somehow, there had been some sort of cultural accommodation that became a major factor in Moses' neglect of a key covenant principle that had been given to Abraham and to his descendants. Because in Genesis 17, you read about it, where God said to Abraham, my covenant is in your flesh, and it is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been, uh, who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off, no pun intended, uh, from his people. God said to him, this is an everlasting covenant. And there's some key principles here that I want to quickly underline. Because you see, between lordship and lostness, there can come certain types of disconnects. The Lord who speaks to us will not be satisfied because the lostness that we see all around us remains unchanged due to what? To certain things that we see not only present, but they could be very real even in our, not only present in Moses' life, but they could be very real in our own life. And I'm going to focus just on four things very quickly. Disconnect number one. We find ourselves wanting to proclaim the message without fully living it. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not what I say? The important issue here is that God had revealed himself, remember, in the burning bush. He said, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. This is who I am. This is who is sending you. It's a reminder that the God that Moses was to represent and whose everlasting covenant he was to proclaim, well, that God confronts Moses with the fact that Moses himself was not living the message that he was to proclaim. His neglect of this one fundamental thing brought on a disconnect, if you wish, between lordship and lostness. Yes, the people are perishing. Yes, God says, I have seen, I have heard, I am concerned, I'm coming down, I want to rescue. But somehow, between the lordship of Moses bowing in front of the burning bush and actually changing that situation, there's a disconnect because Moses wasn't living the message he was supposed to proclaim. Now, let this strike godly fear in all of us. God would rather that we die and he would replace us 
with someone else, then let us misrepresent him and his message to the lost world. When I think about that, I'm serious. At least in my, in the privacy of my room, makes me shake in my boots. It is imperative that we never forget that we do not address the lostness of the world with anything less than lordship in the sense that the church does not meet lostness with just a spoken message, but a lived out message. Are you with me? Muslims are not impacted by our words. I'm amazed at the amount of time and human resource and everything else, whether it's on the internet or in other venues, at the kind of information we throw at the Muslim world. They are not going to be changed by that at all. They are rather impacted by a demonstration of the gospel in our daily life. Enough said about that. Disconnect number two. Accommodating culture to the detriment of the message. That's what Moses did while he was in Midian. That's the reason behind his own children not being circumcised as God said. He accommodated culture to the detriment of the covenant and so he was going to be the carrier of a blurred message. Now you know this, I'm kind of preaching to the choir here. We know that the church today is confronted with so many cultural trends and pressures. And we find that the world wants to redefine everything for us in terms of freedom and rights to the point that even at the highest echelon, such as the Supreme Court, we will be told that the church cannot dictate anything to the state. But let me tell you what it says at the same time, in the same breath practically, but the state will dictate to the church, will tell you what is right, will tell you what is wrong, will tell you what marriage is, will tell you all kinds of things on a number of issues, but you don't tell us anything. It's kind of Islamic a little bit. Muslims don't separate culture from religion or politics from religion. It's all intertwined. In fact, that's how, that's how they evaluate us. They, they think that Western culture, American culture is an extension of Christianity and you can scream your head off and say, no, 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 we're not what you think. Uh, we do not, uh, uh, you know, follow the dictates of this culture, etc." And always the question comes back. If you are not like they are, then how come your, your faith, your religion cannot change the culture? Well, somewhere, somehow, God calls us with regard to the lostness of the world by being the kind of people whose life message will challenge the perception of the Muslim world 
and those who are lost, whether they're Muslim or not, so that they can see we are not what they supposed us to be. There's so much I'd like to say about this matter, but time will not allow us. Let me just go on and share with you disconnect number three. And then you can, by the help of the Holy Spirit, fill in the gaps here. Disconnect number three is allowing a personal character issue to derail the mandate that rescues the lost. Moses had a problem with anger. Did you know that? I think if he lived today, he'd be constantly in court having to deal with anger management. It caused him to strike the rock when God said, speak to it. It caused him to go beyond what the Lord had commanded. But it wasn't the first time. The problem began much earlier. In fact, you find in Exodus chapter 2 that he struck down an offending Egyptian. And later on, when he wanted to intervene in the quarrel of two Hebrew children, Israelites, basically their argument was this. Who are you to tell me not to strike when we all know that that's exactly how you handle problems? His life message said something else. A personal issue. I don't know how many of you have read carefully Exodus 11. This is the chapter where God gives the final pronouncement of judgment against Pharaoh and Egypt. The firstborn shall die. Very serious. And Moses comes and makes that announcement to them. And then he adds this. All of you, you Pharaoh and your servant, you're going to come here. You're going to bow before me. You're going to beg me to leave Egypt. You will kneel before me. And the Bible adds, and Moses was hot with anger, and he left the presence of Pharaoh. Guess what? Did God tell him to say that? Personally, I don't think so. I think God told him about the firstborn dying, yes. But I don't think God said anything about him being angry and throwing that kind of word out into Pharaoh's face. You're going to come and beg me like a dog here. And he's angry and walks out. That never happened. It never happened. Yes, Pharaoh's servant said, just, just get out. Please go, hurry up. But nobody came and bowed before Moses and so forth and gave him the satisfaction of seeing those people groveling at his feet. He spoke in anger. This was an issue that constantly seemed to get him into trouble. It's the kind of stuff that I'm telling you oftentimes can bring a disconnect between lordship and lostness in our own lives. You know God wants to take you further. You know God wants to use you. But at the same time, you know of a certain issue in your life that unless it is resolved, nothing will change. You can bow and you can worship, but the world will remain lost because that one issue in your life is taking you away from everything that God intends for you as an instrument in his hand. 
And unless we devote resources, spiritual uh, energy and fervor to put that under the control of the Holy Spirit, friends, our efforts are doomed to produce absolutely zilch. Deal with it. We all know ourselves. And every time I point one finger, there's three, of course, pointing to myself. God help us. And finally, disconnect number four. Losing sight of the nature of lostness. Losing sight of what it is in its fullness. And it's not just the fact that the people needed to have the blood of the lamb put on the doorposts of their lives. They needed something about the suffering in the mud pit. Lostness is multifaceted. The poverty, the misery, the, the spiritual darkness, just along, it's all one package. And I'm simply suggesting to you this morning in closing that we cannot simply be the kind of people who think about the spiritual need and ignore everything else. And you cannot be that kind of person that thinks about everything else that's outside the box here. The poverty of the people, the need for development, the need to address their suffering, the need to empower them to pull themselves by their bootstraps and so forth. You cannot just so focus on that as to ignore the fact that they need the blood of the lamb on the doorposts of their lives. It's not one or the other. It's always both. And I will suggest to you this morning that compassion ministries are not a means to evangelism. It is evangelism, period. If someone had said to Jesus, ah, we know about your hidden agenda. You're giving bread and fish to the people because you got some ulterior motive. He would have answered them. Yes, I give bread and fish to the people because my father put compassion in my heart for them. I give them bread and fish because they are hungry, but I also give them bread and fish because I want to tell them about the bread of life. It's not one or the other, it's both. And when we lose sight of that, when we stand between lordship and lostness and lose sight of that, lostness remains what it is. Nothing changes. So this morning, my friends, we have to come to grips with a few things. Nick, would you come to lead us in, a prayer, in prayer here? We've gone beyond our time. But let me tell you again, we cannot think of lordship just as a theological concept. It's not something that we just parrot. It's got to be something that so grips us that we live out the message. It's something that so grips us that we will not bow to culture, but rather will become change agents as God would want us to be. It is the kind of thing that calls on us this morning to acknowledge and recognize those character issues that will doom the mission. It is the kind of thing that I believe God puts before us to challenge us. Reminding us that we're in the business of perishables. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whosoever believes will not perish. So let me ask you again. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not 
what I say. Amen. Praise God.